We'll hear argument next to number 95-559, Doctors Associates, Inc. versus Paul Casarato. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Section 2 of the Federal Arbitration Act makes written provisions valid, irrevocable, and enforceable, except for grounds that apply for the revocation of any contract. In this case, however, the Montana Supreme Court refused to enforce the party's agreement to arbitrate because it failed to comply with a heightened notice statute that by its plain language applies only to arbitration agreements and not to other contracts. Respondents thus have tried to recast Montana's notice statute as codifying some general principle of unexpectedness, but that effort fails for two reasons. First, Montana's law does no such thing since it applies to only one type of provision, arbitration agreements, and it applies to them whether they're unexpected or not. Second, the FAA prevents a court from refusing to enforce <coughs> the party's agreement to arbitrate on the basis of a state law principle that turns on the fact that the subject matter involved is arbitration. Thus, under the FAA, a state may not decide, as Montana has decided here, that a contract is fair enough to enforce its basic terms, but not fair enough to enforce its arbitration clause. Congress enacted the Federal Arbitration Act to clear away judicial and legislative suspicion of arbitration. And in so doing, Congress decided for itself to determine the circumstances under which arbitration clauses would be enforceable, unencumbered by state law constraints. To that end, the text of Section 2 alone determines the enforceability of an arbitration agreement. And that text provides that arbitration provisions are enforceable and valid and irrevocable save for one explicit and explicitly limited exception upon grounds that exist for the revocation of any contract. We believe that in determining whether or not a state law or principle fits within that savings clause, two considerations are paramount. First, the savings clause is an exception to a sweeping general rule of enforcement. Therefore, the court must be on its guard not to allow the exceptions to swallow or undercut the general rule. Second, Section 2 establishes a principle of what I'll call rigorous equality for arbitration clauses. They may be no less valid, no less enforceable, and no less irrevocable than other contract terms under state law. As a result, this court has identified two tests that state laws or principles must pass before a law fits within the savings clause. First, the law must be one of general application. That is to say, it must apply to contracts generally. Secondly, even if it is a, in theory, a general principle of law, the particularized application of that general principle cannot turn on the fact that the subject matter involved is arbitration. Suppose that the state had a statute which said uh, that the following terms have to be in bold-faced type. Uh, price, term of the contract, choice of law, add a few more if you can think of them, and arbitration. Uh, would, would that be a, a valid state law that's enforceable? Depending upon the, the law, the, the nature of the law, and, and the things that are included, I think not. And I think it would fail really under two, two principles. First, if, unless the list was quite long, it would not apply to contracts generally, but just apply to a few things. And secondly... Well, this, no, well I'm in, I'm, I'm okay. in the hypothetical, then. It applies to contracts generally. Right. Well, it applies to all, all the contracts? All written contracts. Okay, and does it apply to... You have to bold-faced type, bold type, the price, terms of the contract, choice of law, arbitration. Okay, then I think you have to ask yourself, really, the second... And whether or not attorney's fees are allowed. Thank you. 
course, the more things you put in it, the more it looks like a general principle. Um, but then you have to ask yourself, it seems to me, the second test, which is why does it make the list? Why does arbitration make the list? And if it's making the list, because, of course, the court feels that uh, they're concerned about people arbitrating as opposed to litigating disputes, that they think that they're giving up an especially important right, then, depending upon the size of that list, it may still pa fail to pass the second principle. Uh, that, that the court it's is suppose it were concentrated, the clause were concentrated on the forum and were general. Suppose it read, no choice of forum or choice of law clause in any forum contract will be enforced unless notice of the chosen forum is typed in underlying capital letters. So it's general to all contracts. It's any choice of forum, any choice of law clause. Well, certainly if that, if and I just have to ask one more question about that. If that law applies only to choice of forums that are in arbitration agreements... It applies to all contracts. If you have a choice of law or choice of forum, including arbitration, you could, you could pick the, the, right. the commercial court in um, Zurich. Sure. It would be the same thing as it. Any choice of forum in a form contract. It's not all contracts. It's just in form That's contract. Correct. Would that be? Well, it would... It would for, I think, believe it would cause the same problems uh, that we're addressing, if I may explain. Assuming that it applies just uh, to both litigation and arbitration, it begins to look more general. However, what the state is saying in that circumstance, the circumstance you're positing, is, okay, well, we'll let you arbitrate, but you have to do it under our rules. And I believe that when the, when the states are permitted to start tinkering with the party's choices about how they wish to arbitrate, it raises many of the same concerns. For example, if the court... Suppose, uh, do you have any doubt about whether such a provision would be valid as to choice of a court? Suppose the state says any choice of a judicial forum, right. any choice of law to govern this contract has to be put in on page one. The FAA does not speak to such clauses, and uh, certainly that, that would not run afoul of the Federal Arbitration Act, whether there's anything else. But then you seem to be saying the Arbitration Act, uh, far from allowing laws of general application to apply, says a law of general application about choice of forum can apply to all other contracts, but not to arbitration contracts. What I'm saying is, uh, Your Honor, and, and obviously the the hypothetical you're posing is very different from the statute. What I'm saying is that as the states begin to tinker with the parties' choices of the, met, the rules under which they'll conduct their arbitration, you begin to raise the same issues. For example, if, if I may, if the state said, okay, you can arbitrate, but you have, your arbitrators have to be chosen from the voter rolls in a certain town, and you have to have 12 arbitrators, and all the rules of evidence have to apply. What does that have to do with saying choice of form has to be on page one. Because I think that to the extent that one is tinkering with the, with the choice that the parties made of the method in which they're going to resolve their dispute, that it raises the issue as to whether or not one is trying to uh, interfere with the party's choice of arbitration or one is trying to do something else. Of so course, one of the underlying issues here is that uh, in these cases, typically one party will say, I didn't make this choice. I didn't know anything about it. I signed this thing. Uh, if we are concerned that this is happening more and more, do the federal courts have the authority to develop a law of adhesion of contracts uh, so that as a matter of federal common law, I suppose under the arbitration clause, the courts could develop certain rules to protect the parties? Well, I, Your Honor, I believe that the, the, the text of, of Section 2 provides the answer to that. And that text says 
that the written provisions are valid, irrevocable, and enforceable, whether in state court or federal court, save upon grounds that exist for the revocation of any contract, which is to say contracts generally. Now, this court in, in, in Perry and in, in First Options has said that you look to state rules, has made the choice that let me step back. So as a matter of federal law, therefore, the arbitration agreement is valid and enforceable. The court has then looked to state principles of general application on, on revocability. But they has done that because the statute so provides. So I think that the court would be prohibited from developing specialized rules under some sort of federal common law designed to uh, impose on arbitration agreements limitations that are not applicable to clauses generally. Even though the evil sought to be cured is peculiarly related to arbitration contracts? Yes, even though the evil thought in Something that Something of a vacuum, then, is there? Well, but, but the law generally, of course, is that um, all of the terms in a form contract and an adhesion contract are, in fact, presumptively valid if you put your signature on it. So that, in fact, the law of contracts generally would say these are valid. And that law of contracts generally is being skewed solely in singling out arbitration and solely because of the fact that it's arbitration involved uh, as opposed to something else. And one must ask oneself, why is one skewing the law that way? And it is because one is making a value judgment that arbitration is uh, perhaps uh, less good than uh, a court proceeding like precisely the value judgment Congress sought to take away from both federal courts and state courts and legislate, state legislatures when it enacted the FAA. But going back to Justice Ginsburg's question, if, it, if we knew for a fact uh, that her choice of forum uh, uh, limitation did not uh, did not really bear on uh, or have application uh, to arbitration agreements uh, to any uh, to any degree uh, beyond their application to any other choice of forum agreements. If we knew that there was no reason to suppose that it was aimed at arbitration agreements, that it was being enforced sort of even-handedly with all choice of forum agreements, uh, and that there were plenty of choice of forum agreements which were not arbitration agreements, in that case, we would say that's general enough uh, and that wouldn't violate the, the FAA. It it's certainly, certainly, as you posited, Justice Souter, it sounds general enough. But I would ask the question, so, well, what have, principle... I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Well, I would ask the question, is, what principle then would determine overriding the party's choice of, uh, of where they arbitrate in that case from the choosing the AAA rules, which provide, for example, for the rules of evidence don't apply. And where do you draw the line? There's no providing the choice. It's simply a notice requirement. I'm sorry? It's simply a notice requirement that you notify the, the in the form contract, you put certain things on page one, and one is choice of form. We're not talking anything about the rules. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought that you were talking about that, that you could not arbitrate outside the state, and certainly a rule such as that no, would cause those problems. It's a, it says that choice of form and choice of law go on page one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, again, uh, I, I, I well, am, the problem that's here, not the thing is that as far as, the, as far as its generality is concerned, right. that is no different from a provision that says choice of form provisions are invalid. I think that that's exactly as right. far as its generality is concerned. The one is the same as, as the other, that, and that you would correct. certainly not not assert that the latter is okay under the FAA, would you? No, I would not. And indeed, uh, just to, to follow up on that point, it has been argued by the respondents that uh, this is just a notice statute. This doesn't affect the enforceability of these clauses. Uh, but that argument is is simply not so. This law, which is labeled a notice law, says that arbitration clauses contain an agreement without notice 
are not enforceable, whereas the other terms in the same agreement, without notice, are enforceable. So this statute, which is nominally denominated a notice statute, does in fact go to the enforceability of the arbitration clause. Are, are there yeah, other we, uh, provisions in what other statutes or rules of law in Montana require other kinds of clauses besides arbitration clauses to be typed in underlined capital letters on the first page of a contract? There are a few uh, isolated examples. Pardon? What are they? Uh, I mean, actually, I'm not sure that any actually requires an underline on the first place. There, uh, as you might imagine, the UCC, for example, says that a disclaimer of implied warranties has to be, quote, conspicuous. Uh, that's a heightened notice uh, statute. Um, there, I believe the respondents make reference to retail installment contracts requiring certain uh, disclosures. I don't believe they're underlying capital letters. But basically, we're talking about not the law generally in Montana. Well, I mean, that would be the question. If, if there are a whole lot of provisions like this, and this is not different, uh, then I guess it isn't just for arbitration. Uh, and if, in fact, this seems to be quite different, or there are only a handful, then it does seem different just for arbitration. I would agree so, with you. So which is it? I mean, I'm sure I'm going to hear oh, the argument is, in a few minutes. It is certainly just a handful. Yeah. Uh, it is certainly just a handful. But I would su suggest that um, uh, even if it were five or ten, I don't believe it is, but let's say it was even five or ten, we're not talking about a coherent body of general law applicable generally. We're talking about things that are, are singled out. And, why, and they're singling out arbitration in this statute in the same way in which they're singling out the other things and not applying the law generally, because the law generally says that these clauses, even if it's in an adhesion contract, even if there's unequal bargaining power, if the signature's on it, these clauses are, everything else in that contract is presumptively valid. You're saying that if there are several other examples, but in separate parts of the statutes, it still shows kind of an ad hoc approach to each particular thing, rather than a general feeling that all of these particular things should be subject to heightened notice. Exactly, Mr. Chief Justice. Well, are, you, are you saying then that there can be no uh, there can be no general rule within the meaning of the statute that refers to, in, in substantive terms, to the kind of provision that it applies to? In other words, the, the state law says no agreements without offer and acceptance. Uh, we, we can certainly find that an arbitration agreement fails for a lack of offer or a lack of acceptance. But, but, but when you're do, but, if yeah. that were the general principle announced, then you'd go to the second prong of our test, which is, is its application in that particular circumstance is a turn on the fact that it's arbit arbitration. And the answer is no. It turns on the fact that there's no acceptance. But, but uh, then, then it becomes complicated when you get to, to examples in which there's a whole series of terms upon which it may turn. And I think you're saying, but I'm not sure, no matter how long that series might be, as in Justice Breyer's example, uh, as long as there is a substantive reference to arbitration, that it would fail. Are you saying that? Yeah, I would say, again, to go back to our two, the, two, the two tests that this court has identified, if the list is long, maybe it then qualifies as a law of general application. But it's, the, the second part is, why, does it, why is it being applied in this circumstance? And, and, and in this case, as you posit, uh, it's making that list because it's arbitration. I suppose I didn't agree with you about that. Suppose, suppose I thought to just, well, look at the... Look at the other things on the list, and if there are a lot of things on the list, maybe it's just treating them like that. And if they're only one or two or three and they look different, then they're singling out arbitration. All right, on that assumption, how would you argue this? I mean, I want... Okay, under that assumption, we'd still prevail because, in this case because this law only applies to arbitration, one. Secondly, 
um, under the general law in Montana, as reflected in the cases, all the other terms are valid. And third, even though they may be able to point to a few instances in which other things have been singled out as arbitration is being singled out here, they're not talking about the laws that apply to contracts generally. They're talking about a handful of other things that simply don't meet the test. So other even under that construct, it fails. What are those? I mean, do you want to say anything else about those other things? I, I know the UCC. I know, I, I'm aware because of their uh, footnote uh, uh, that the retail installment contracts, but that's all I'm aware. For example, Justice Breyer, um, I'm not aware of any principle in Montana law that waiving any constitutional right requires any special notice on the first day. You can waive a jury trial. You can waive these things um, under Montana law, and nothing special is required. But something is specially required of arbitration under Montana law, and, it, and, and the court explained why something special was required, and that was because the court itself and the legislature were concerned about citizens in Montana agreeing to a procedure that that, that court felt was devoid of all procedural protections. The other things you can waive, one is jury trial, are there other important things you want to list that they can waive in Montana? To be honest, Justice Breyer, we have looked to see whether there are special rules for waiving any constitutional rights in Montana, and we could not find any. So it's, it's, it's rather than uh, having a list of things that you can, I, I haven't found any uh, in, our, uh, review, uh, in our review of the law. Mr. Robinson, you answered this question to Justice Breyer that it would be the same uh, outcome uh, Suppose you had answered the other way to my question. You'd say choice of forum as a general matter is one thing. This, that's not what this Montana law says. It says arbitration. Right. Well, Your Honor, I guess I should have said it at the outset. I have the view that I have about your question, but the answer, whether I accept your view or don't accept your view, to, to your question doesn't decide this case, because this case doesn't deal with choice of forum. It doesn't deal with litigation and arbitration. It only deals with arbitration, and it only requires arbitration to be on the first page, and it only says, and it says that only arbitration is not enforceable if it's not on the first page. So uh, while we may... Uh, you say I'm raising an academic question. <laughs> Uh, I, yes, Your Honor. <laughs> it certainly is not a question that, that uh, the answer for which uh, it determines this case uh, at all uh, because of the focused nature of the statute. And I think that the courts, it's important under the Savings Clause, I believe, to interpret it and to enforce it and to apply it in the way in which the manner in which this court has done in its cases, which is to say, uh, insist, as the language does, that only uh, laws or principles that apply to contracts generally can uh, be used to revoke an arbitration clause. And it's important for really two reasons. The first is that if you want to allow states to add additional limitations or their own special rules or processes for arbitration agreements, it inevitably undercuts uh, the enforceability of arbitration. And it makes them, puts them on a different footing than other contracts. Um, so it impairs not only the words, or it violates the words of such, but it impairs Congress's intent that this court has recognized to, put, to treat arbitration agreements like any other uh, contract. Under that formulation, what about our decision in Volt? Well, Your Honor, to be honest, we, I think that uh, Volt is about the oddest place to support, find support for the Montana Supreme Court. Volt enforced the party's choice of law. Volt enforced the arbitration agreement. In this case, the Montana Supreme Court refused to enforce the party's choice of law and refused to enforce the arbitration agreement. Volt really was no different 
Well, that, that's one way of characterizing it, but it did stay the arbitration pending judicial proceedings. But it didn't say... As I recall, it, it's not clear to me uh, whether or not those judicial proceedings would have been binding on the arbitrator. Well, let's, there, let's for a moment assume they would have been. Uh, what what I think it's a quite a plausible, uh, quite, quite a plausible conclusion. Well, but... but you're assuming, I think, in the, in, in, in the question, that the parties intended something different. And that's what Bolt is all about. That, in fact, the parties intended that that was the result. It was, it, it, Bolt, I mean, really, Bolt is no different than if the parties had in their arbitration agreement spelled out and said, when there is litigation pending with someone else, this is how we'll handle it. And the court in Bolt said that the, it took the California Supreme Court's interpretation of the contract as the effective equivalent to what I've just posed and said, well, uh, the FAA is about enforcing parties' choices uh, and we need to enforce those choices. But that's not the situation here. And here we have a situation where the parties have said Connecticut law governs and we want to arbitrate. And the court wiped away the Connecticut choice of law and then applied the Montana statute to uh, eliminate the party's choice uh, of law. And if the parties had chosen Montana law, what would your result I don't think the result, in the ordinary case, the result wouldn't be different, and I say that for, for this reason. Certainly the then Volt becomes a harder case for you. Well, under Volt, then, you're trying to determine the intent of the parties. However, this court, just last term in the Master Bono case said, recognized, it's a cardinal principle of statutory interpretation that two clauses shouldn't be seen to intrude on one another. And one would ask the question then, if the court finds that the choice of law clause is meant to actually render completely invalid another clause in the contract, are they applying uh, principles of con contract construction in an even-handed manner, or are they applying them in a manner that's skewed against arbitration? And in Perry, the court said, in construing an arbitration clause, the court must do so the same way it would a non-arbitration clause. And so if, in fact, the court were overriding one clause of the agreement with another clause of the agreement and doing so because arbitration was involved as opposed to some other term, then that would run afoul of the FAA in the same circumstance, even when they chose Montana law in that circumstance. And you wouldn't ordinarily expect that the parties in one clause would say, well, arbitrate, and another clause say, no, we, you know, we're not going to arbitrate. Um, but I, I must say, as the amicus brief points out, that is what courts have been doing with Volt, uh, contrary, I think, to the, to the intent of Volt, is that they have been using uh, a choice of law clause to say, well, then, if you've chosen Montana law, we'll just throw out the entire arbitration agreement. That's not what happened to Volt. I don't think that's what Volt stands for. It certainly isn't what the court explained it st stood for in Master Bono. But yet that has been happening uh, in courts below. Of course, here again, the parties chose Connecticut law. Uh, and under Connecticut law, this arbitration agreement is fully uh, enforceable and fully valid. And um, the court then used the notice statute to uh, void the party's choice of law, the same notice statute that used to void the party's uh, choice of arbitration. Could there be uh, an arbitration clause in a form contract that, uh, that could be held unconscionable? Well, let me say two things. First, I want to make clear that this statute isn't limited to form contracts or adhesion contracts okay. or anything else. Going to your hypothetical, um, I believe the answer is no if you are saying holding the, arb the fact of arbitration unconscionable. If you're uh, striking down the entire contract, 
that would be acceptable uh, under uh, uh, the construct that I've proposed because then you would be fairly assured that what's happening is a principle of general application, not something that is uh, targeted to arbitration. Um, so it's striking down the entire... I don't understand that. Uh, I'm sorry. You, you say if, if, you, if you have an arbitration clause, the state can invalidate the whole contract because the arbitration oh, no, is I'm, unconscionable? No, I didn't mean to say that, and let me make myself clear. If they're striking down the entire contract because there happens to be an arbitration clause in the contract, that would be uh, invalid under vault. What I'm saying is that the court might decide that all of the terms of this form contract fell. Or enough of them. Uh, because they're unconscionable, wholly apart from whether it has an arbitration clause. For example, that... Or that the arbitration clause itself got in there because of unconscionable contract. A fraud in the inducement, for example. Uh, if, if the arbitration clause got in there because of fraud in the inducement, in that case, in that case, there would be a general principle, fraud in the inducement, and it would be determined not because the subject matter is arbitration, but because it was a fraud that went on about a material term. So it would meet both of our, uh, our tests in that regard. And unless the court has further questions, I'd like to reserve my time. Very well, Mr. Kravitz. Uh, Ms. Sykes, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The issue presented in this case is whether a Montana sta notice statute, a statute which is aimed at ensuring that parties know that they're signing a contract that includes an arbitration provision, is preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. The Montana notice requirement is different from all the state requirements that this Court has preempted in the past because its function is not to prevent arbitration, but to help ensure that arbitration is consensual. The statutes preempted in Southland, in Perry, and in Terminix prevented the enforcement of arbitration agreements so that there was nothing a person who wanted to enforce arbit arbitration could do to make sure that it would be enforced. Here, on the other hand, it's in the total control of the person drafting the agreement to make sure that the arbitration provision will be enforced. But you want to make the, uh, the, the arbitration agreement more consensual than other forms of the contract, other elements of the contract. That's your problem. Not that they want to make it consensual, but they, they want to make it more consensual, hyper-consensual. Isn't that your difficulty? I, I don't think that's what Montana is doing. Um, let me explain why it falls within the um, savings clause. Of, of Section 2 of the Federal Arbitration Act. Suppose for a moment that Montana had not adopted the statutory notice requirement, but we had similar facts so that the plaintiff um, had tried to sue, had filed a suit in court, the defendant had, had um, sought to stay litigation in order to, co to compel arbitration, then the plaintiff could have gone into court and said that the arbitration was invalid under general contract principles that unexpected clauses in contracts need to be conspicuous. And in that case, um, I don't think that would have been preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act because what the court was do would be doing in that case is applying a general contract principle of unexpected, um, of reasonable expectations doctrine to the arbitration provision and invalidating it. And that that's simply what the Montana court is doing, as the Montana legislature did, in, in enacting the statute. But I don't think we can really deal with that hypothesis based on what you give us, because uh, if, if, we, if, it, if it were shown on the record uh, that this concept of the unexpected uh, turned out to be a concept which is either applied uh, in, in sort of an in, in undisciplined fashion by courts, 
so that it could be used to single out arbitration, or if it was shown that it was applied in a way uh, which, by whatever set of principles the state courts were, it tended to fall heavily on arbitration, or if it could be shown that it was intended uh, as, as a common law rule, really, to, to, to apply to arbitration and make it more difficult, we would say that there was not, in fact, a sufficient generality there, and that, therefore, the rule, uh, the, the, the unexpectedness concept uh, would, would fail because it wasn't sufficiently general. And, and we, we just don't know enough, I guess, even if we had the case that you hypothesized, to know how we would rule on that. Well, I think with the Montana... Um the Montana court has adopted the reasonable expectations doctrine, and they've spelled out how they apply the doctrine in two cases involving arbitration. And I think if you look at that doctrine, it could have been applied in this case. It um, was, but it wasn't. Yeah, but it wasn't. No, it, no, it wasn't applied in this case. Um, they applied the statute. Right. But, but my argument is, is that if it would have been okay for the Montana court to have invalidated it under those general contract principles, it should also be okay for the Montana legislature to do the same thing. Sorry, can you but explain to me why it's unexpected? Arbitration clauses are used in all manner of form contracts. It's not immediately obvious that that would fit within the definition of unexpected terms. The notice provision, the notice requirement was enacted at the same time that um, in 1985 when Montana was um, changing their um, entire law, and for the hundred years previously, it had been Montana stat in Montana statute that arbitration agreements weren't going to be enforced. So I think it was perfectly reasonable for the Montana legislature to assume that, that it would be, um, it wasn't the background knowledge that people had in Montana, because... But isn't there a policy uh, answer to that? In other words, shouldn't, shouldn't we say, uh, just on the hypothesis that you give us, uh, that we would not, re we should not recognize a state policy which brands as unexpected uh, a form of adjudication, adjudication which it is federal law and policy to promote. But the statute itself does not discourage arbitration, and it doesn't prevent the well, enforcement of yeah, But on your assumption, your assumption is that the that the arbitration clause may properly be found to be unexpected within the meaning of the Montana. Uh, either common law rule or statutory rule, uh, and it seems to me that that in and of itself uh, is is a um, uh, is is at odds with federal policy. Well, it's, not a, it's not a question whether it discourages arbitration under the under the uh, section two. Uh, it, the thing has to be uh, uh, put on such grounds as exist in law or equity for the revocation of any contract. That's right, and and that provision has to mean something, and if. There is a doctrine that says that the unexpected um, terms in standardized form contract doctrine is not only applied to arbitration provisions. It's applied to terms in standardized form contracts that um, the person signing the agreement might not expect. But and the Montana Supreme Court didn't apply that, that judge-made doctrine here, did it? No. No, it did not. But, but what the Montana legislature was doing in enacting the notice requirement in statute was essentially the same thing. Well, except apparently it thought that only arbitration would ever be unexpected. No, that's not true. There are well, some other no, examples. There's no generality to the statute. It simply singles out arbitration. It, it, it does single out arbitration, but it's... But 
the Montana, under Montana law, other provisions in a contract could be invalidated if they weren't conspicuous under this general common law that's also in Montana. And what the legislature is doing is simply creating a bright line rule that actually helps people who are drafting agreements to know, okay, if I'm going to put an arbitration provision in, it needs to be conspicuous, and this is how I need to make sure that it's going to be conspicuous. Well, why didn't it help other people who are drafting other kinds of unexpected provisions? Well, you have to look at the... Um, at the reason that the legislature was doing it. It wasn't saying, okay, what are the ex unexpected provisions out there? It was done in a context of considering arbitration. And, and I don't think a legislature has to do everything in order to do anything. It was, was this identifying... Done simultaneously with the... Uh, yes, with in 19, exactly. In 1985, as a result of Southland, um, for the first time in Montana, arbitration agreements became enforceable. And at that same time, the Montana legislature required there to be a notice given so that people knew that they were now signing a contract that included an arbitration provision. You want us to look at, uh, at Montana law as a whole and not at the statutory law separately from the judge-made law. And you exactly. If you look at the exactly. whole, whole ball of wax, uh, this is just one piece of a, of a general rule uh, requiring notice of surprising provisions. Exactly. That's ex exactly. And the other members of that class are? The other members of the class in statute are um, terms and retail, install and, uh, retail installment contracts, um, part of the UCC requirements that Petitioner was talking the about. The ones that but are... But then also in common law, uh, Montana has um, invalidated certain provisions in insurance contracts. And also, Montana doesn't have a huge body of case law. They do look to California because they adopted their code from California. So they also look to the California common law where there's been several other types of provisions. But I mean, is that listed in your... What I'd need would be, if we're to look at it a whole, is the list of provisions that don't have to do with arbitration where the law of Montana, rather judge-made or yes, legislature-made, yes, yes, does in fact require notice roughly similar to underlined capital letters on the first page of the contract. Not that has to be just in those words. Right. But where right. is that list? Is that, I, did, I found a few things. Yeah, there's not a, a comprehensive list. There's some cases. Um, My guess is, I would assume perhaps, that since you went through this, that the reason that there isn't a comprehensive list is you weren't able to find many things. There aren't very many cases in Montana. Or Corporation of California law or any place. I mean, you've looked at this pretty thoroughly. It's a good brief. And, and so my, my guess is that there just aren't that many things. Well, I also would like to point out that in terms of arbitration agreements, they, um, before 1985, and they were invalidated for a whole lot of other reasons. So you'd only be looking at, at a short period of yeah. time anyway. I want to get back I, to... May I ask you a question before you leave the, the, the question Justice Breyer raised? And that is... In, in giving the, the answer that you could to his question, you were giving some examples that at least perhaps I didn't understand what you were saying, but they didn't seem to suggest to me that they would be an appropriate part of a series of unexpected terms. For example, uh, you, you mentioned the, the terms of a, of a retail installment contract. Um, what would be unexpected uh, in, in buying a, a refrigerator on the installment plan uh, in the fact that there were terms governing the, the, the installment payments. Uh, what's unexpected about that? It seems to me that the concept these examples are pointing to is something other than unexpectedness. Um, I think that the rationale behind um, what the Montana legislature was doing in that is, is based on the understanding that people don't necessarily um, read form contracts carefully. And so... That's not the same thing as being unexpected. 
Um, well, I, th- I think that the terms that need to be in, in, in the statute have to do with the high interest rates that are in retail installment contracts. And so it wouldn't be within the reasonable expectations of a person signing a retail installment uh, contract that there were going to be such high interest rates. But if, you know, if that is an example of the series, then it seems to me that arbitration is being analogized with high, if not quite unconscionable, interest. And it sounds to me like a series, whatever the adjective the state uses, it sounds like a series of disfavored terms, not unexpected terms. Um, it's not that the term is disfavored, because if that were the case, well, <laughs> obviously under they're the federal law, they couldn't do that. They're not in compatible categories, are they? The state can disfavor that which is unexpected. Exactly. Uh, for, for, for the obvious reasons that parties will have their legitimate expectations or what, what they felt were legitimate expectations. Exactly. I think that's right. And I think it's important also to note that the way that that statute's been applied in Montana is that if that shows that it's really a notice requirement and nothing more is the Chor case that's cited in our brief. In that case, Ms. Chor um, signed a contract that included an arbitration provision. She said um, she, that she understood at the time she signed the contract that the arbitration, that her, um, any disputes under the contract would have to be arbitrated. And even though the notice requirement wasn't on the front page of that contract, the Montana Supreme Court went ahead and compelled arbitration. I think that shows that in Montana, it's, it really is an informed consent provision. If the parties consent to arbitrate, then the court is going well, to enforce it. How did the Supreme Court of Montana avoid the statute in that case? It, it just kind of ignores it, actually. It's not, <laughs> it doesn't really explain it. It recognizes that the, um, that the uh, statute exists, but then... Um, then <laughs> And our invalidation of it would make no difference, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Miss, I suppose we had a case of, instead of arbitration, there was an equipment, there were some, Montana has some farmers, I know Michigan does, that's where this case came from, but there's a rental equipment thing that they sign with some company in New York, and they get into a big dispute, and then they find out that this contract says they've consented to be sued in the state courts in New York. Under your view of what the Montana law is, would that be uh, fall under this generally unexpected so it would be no good? Well, it actually would do more than that um, because Montana has a statute, I wanted to um, point this out to Justice Breyer too, that forbids um, legal um, contracts from um, restraining legal from putting any restraints on legal proceedings. So form selection clauses that are outside of the state in Montana are void as a matter of the statute, as would um, jury trial. So there's no need to um, require notice of those waiver-type provisions because you, you just can't waive um, your legal rights except for arbitration. That statute, then the um, form selection clauses that are consented to? Uh, you, right, you can't consent to form selection clauses that are outside of the state in Montana. And then have a choice of law. Um, well, the statute it says restraints upon legal proceedings are void. So any, it, it's been used to every stipulation or condition in a contract by which any party thereto is restricted from enforcing his rights under the contract by the usual proceedings in the ordinary tribunals or which limits the time within which he may, 
may thus enforce his rights is void. And it's been used, um, it now has an exception, so it doesn't um, invalidate arbitration agreements. That was what it was amended in 1985. Before 1985, it was used to apply to arbitration provisions. But since then, it also has been applied for form selection clauses for um, it, it, litigation. It's actually begun in the form selected. Uh, well, in that case, I, Montana it, would have no choice oh, but have right, to recognize right, it. Right, absolutely. Um, absolutely. It seems to me that what the petitioner's basic argument is, is that whenever a court or legislature applies a general contract principle in a case involving an arbitration clause, that violates the Federal Arbitration Act because it singles out an arbitration, because it, by singling out the arbitration clause, it shows hostility toward arbitration. Well, we don't have to deal with that, of course. Okay. No. I mean, all we have to deal with, I suppose, is whether this particular law of Montana is valid or invalid under the Federal Arbitration Act provision. I think that's right. But my point is, is that Congress said that arbitration agreements can be invalidated upon grounds that exist for the revocation of any contract. And that savings clause has to mean something. And if it doesn't mean that a, a state can't um, invalidate an unexpected clause in a standardized form contract and use that general principle and apply it specifically to arbitration clauses, then I don't think Section 2 means well, anything. What are, what are the other, you're talking about the other unexpected things other than arbitration. And uh, has the Supreme Court of Montana said that Things other provisions other than Montana, uh, other than arbitration, must be displayed on the first uh, page of the contract in in capital letters, or have they have they simply invalidated those provisions? They've invalidated them. Uh, then that isn't the same treatment. No, Mon but what Mon the Montana the doctrine of how you determine whether or not something is within the reasonable expectations of someone signing the contract also has to go to whether it's conspicuous or not. Um, and the common law is developed that way. So if it's on the front page of a contract, you can't argue anymore that you didn't expect to see it because it's there, it's in capital letters, and, and you see it. So you can no longer say, well, this, I didn't know what I was signing. Um, and so that's the, how the un unexpectedness doctrine works out in practice? Yes. To avoid it, you put it on the front yes. page. Yes, yes, you, you make sure it's conspicuous. And you put the reactions of the important terms of the contract on the other pages. <laughs> <laughs> well, the people would be looking for those. <laughs> and, and, and the common law doesn't say it has to be on the front page, but, which is why I think the statute actually benefits parties, because it sets out what... Um, what the person drafting the agreement has to do in order to make sure that their provision is conspicuous enough. So it sets out a bright line rule. It, once it's on the front page, they don't have to worry. They know it's going to be enforced in Montana. Montana has, since Southland, in, time after time, enforced arbitration agreements. It's not a state that's refusing to enforce arbitration agreements. They've only refused twice, once in this case, and the other one which was based on Volt. Um, and and all that the, stat the statute doesn't create any burden, uh, any significant burden on on a business to comply with it. It simply um, requires them to look in the statute, see what's required, put it on the site. How about the problem that a nationwide merchant has? And Montana says page one in capital letters, and suppose Nevada says page three and boldface. And these are form contracts that, that are prepared so they could be used in every state. Well, that's why I think that the, um, 
tour case is important because it shows that in Montana, um, technical noncompliance isn't going to mean that, that the arbitration provision is going to be um, thrown out. So that if, if in Montana you had a, if you made sure that the arbitration provision was conspicuous in some other way, um, the evidence from Chor would be that the Montana Supreme Court would go ahead and, and enforce it. And I'd also just like to say that, I mean, Doc, But there you said it was, she knew about it. Right. She did know about it. Right. She Suppose um, the merchant has complied with California law, which requires uh, on the first page, but in ordinary type. And the, the um, person never note, never read the contract, never knew anything about arbitration. I, I think that, the, that um, businesses who transact um, in interstate commerce, like Doctors Associates has 10,000 franchisees across the country, and for each of, they have to comply with all sorts of different state laws as it is. So this is not a significant burden on them. For example, 12 states have franchise um, well, that's a different than the one you gave me before. I mean, you yes, just, I think uh, now you're saying they must comply with the divergent laws, so they well, can't I, use the one form. <laughs> I think that that there's evidence, given the Chore case, that the Montana court, if if the provision was conspicuous, wouldn't hold hold the um, party to such an exacting requirement as a notice. Because if it had been conspicuous in some other way, the purpose of the statute of providing informed consent would have been um, given. That's that remarkable, given, given the terms of the statute. And unless such notice is displayed, the contract may not be subject to arbitration. Right. Well, that's what it says, but uh, we don't. But, but the person that's a little harsh, and we're not going to do that. <laughs> well, I would they're, they're different out there in Montana, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I think there's two there's, there's two points to your to your question. First, I'm not sure that 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 given the Chor case, the Montana's um, court wouldn't have gone ahead and enforced the arbitration agreement anyway. But even if they were um, looked at the Montana notice statute and said it's not the way we require, we're going to um, invalidate the arbitration provision. It's not a tremendous burden on a on an interstate on a business transacting business across the country to make sure that they comply with the different requirements of each state. Um, as I was saying, there's 12 states that have these franchise registration and disclosure requirements. Franchisers have to know what those are and they have to comply with them. This is just an insignificant burden compared to all the other um, state laws that, are, that someone has to comply with. All it does is it requires um, it's just to ensure that a person signing a contract knows that it includes an arbitration provision. It, it doesn't discourage arbitration in any way, and it, it is easy for someone drafting the agreement to comply with it. It's not a, a difficult um, process at all. And I, I also just wanted to make... The selected um, forum was in Connecticut, right? They were going to have arbitration in Connecticut. Yes. Could a Connecticut court, a state or federal, says diversity, uh, instruct the parties to cease and desist from continuing that litigation in Montana because they have bound themselves to a clause that says arbitration? 
Uh, what a Connecticut court that, whose law is we give effect to these agreements. Say to the parties over whom it has jurisdiction, stop litigating in Montana on pain of contempt of the Connecticut court. I don't know. Um, that would be a matter of, I don't think that that's specific to this particular situation. That would be in, in any case where there was, um, parties were trying to proceed in Montana and Connecticut um, thought that they had more jurisdiction over the case. I don't, that isn't a specific to um, whether arbitration is involved. Well, maybe it's suggested under the Federal Arbitration Act this contract has to be treated the same way in every state. Right. And so, well, I, the, uh, I'm not sure I understand, understand exactly what your, your question is. Well, I'm, I'm trying to suggest that this, that there could be an unseemly confrontation among states that are pro-arbitration and states that are a little slow at getting there unless there's a uniform interpretation to the federal law. For the but, the, but the Federal Arbitration Act did leave for the states the ability to invalidate um, arbitration agreements under, the, under um, general grounds um, that would apply to the revocation of any contract. Yes, but the question is how can you uh, really argue that something that says arbitration is general grounds? Well, I, if, if you can't say that, then I don't see that the savings clause in Section 2 means anything because by singling, you'd always be singling out an arbitration provision in any kind of, of case where you were looking at the validity of the making of that agreement. May and I ask you a, a, a question? I, mean, I don't mean to interrupt your... No. But, but I, I, My sir, time is and, limited. What? Well, well... <laughs> You may, have, you may welcome a different question. Is it your view that uh, the, upon remand, supposing we, we can agree with your opponent that the statute is unenforceable because it clearly singles out a, a, a arbitration agreement, is it your view that on remand the Montana Supreme Court could reinstate its, its order saying the case may go forward in Montana on the ground that we have a common law principle that unexpected provisions have to be conspicuous, and this isn't conspicuous. Yes. So yes. The, this may not end the lawsuit if, even if you lose. <laughs> right. I, I think, and, and if that is true, if that's okay, which I think it has to be under the savings clause, then what, then what the Montana legislature did should also be okay, because it was essentially it was, doing the What the Montana thing. legislature did, under your view of Montana law, was just superfluous. That they yes. could have simply repealed the prohibition against arbitration agreements, and the Montana Supreme Court would have decided this case precisely the same way on this background principle of common law yes. that they never mentioned. And so what they were doing was simply creating this bright line rule that actually benefits arbitration because it gives people that, that rule that they know they have to comply with. You have in your brief on this the list of other cases decided on this basis of this background rule. So that we're not, I mean, this, this starts with permanent, um, keeps, like the termites, it keeps sort of coming back. Now, let me, uh, in case I don't, there's um, Transamerica v. Royal, which is, um, uh, which is, which is the case where the Montana court um, adopted the reasonable expectations doctrine. That's at 656 P. 2nd, 820 at 824. 
Um, then it's discussed again in Passage and Tour, which are both cited in my brief. Um, State Farm versus the State of Braun, which is 793 P. 2nd, 253. Um, it's discussed again in Welcome, with two L's, um, versus Home Insurance Company, 849 P. 2nd, 190. And I think it's also important, though... Those are surely not cases which say that the provision in question must be typed in underlined capital letters on the first page of the contract. There are no. a lot of other ways of making it prominent, like right. wave it in the face of that's the plaintiff or do all sorts of things. It would not be this statute that, no, that's, that is being applied. That's correct. That's correct. But what the statute does is it tells the party drafting the agreement how to be sure that it's going to meet the requirements. That's that a pro-arbitration statute. <laughs> right. <laughs> it encourages, it makes sure that, unlike, as I said, all the other statutes that this court has preempted, this one is easy to comply with. In, in all the other cases, there was nothing someone who wanted to arbitrate could do to ensure that the arbitration agreement would be enforced. In this case, all they have to do is comply with this requirement, which is an insignificant burden. Um, they just need to put it on the front page. Are you going to advise the Montana Supreme Court to uh, go ahead and uh, strike it down under a common law rule? You think that would be good legal advice? I mean, you say they may. You, well, are you sure they may? Should they be sure that they may? I think they, they can, because if... They can decree that arbitration agreements are unexpected. Not as a general... I... They would be looking to the particular... Surely to make the same argument to them you made to us. I don't know why you'd be ashamed of doing that. No, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> Thank you, Ms. Sykes. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Kravitz, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I want to make two points in my rebuttal, if I may, just so that I'm clear about what our position is. The first is this, and it was the second point that I made in my opening. Um, regardless of whether or not this statute merely codifies some general principle of expectedness, which I don't think it does, but assuming for a moment that it does, as Ms. Sykes has said, it still falls under the FAA. So it would not be possible on remand for the Montana Supreme Court to decide. Um, we're now going to apply a general principle. The general principle is adhesion. We're not going to call it a statute. We're going to call it a general principle. And we're going to find <laughs> that this is unexpected because Montana has outlawed arbitration for 100 years, and therefore no one in Montana would expect such a clause. And this court dealt with precisely that issue in Perry. In footnote 9 in Perry, the court said, you cannot have a statute that singles out arbitration. But it didn't stop there. It went on and said, but there's one thing more. If you're applying a state law principle of general applicability, and in that case, it was the, the, the law of unconscionability, one can, a state cannot decide that uh, a uh, principle viol is violated on the, on the basis of the fact that arbitration is involved, because after all, if that's what could be done, then the courts could do that which this court has said the legislatures may not do. Mr. Kravitz, isn't there another answer to my, my suggestion, namely that your, your opponent is suing on the contract, aren't they? They're claiming a breach of the contract. That's correct. So they can't very well say the whole contract is invalid. They're really just attacking the arbitration. Clause. We're just attacking. You're absolutely right, Justice Stevens. And um, let me say one other thing. The second point I wanted to make was that this statute, uh, Ms. Sykes says, it's easy to comply with. I suggest to the court that the test that this court has announced is not whether it's easy to comply with, but it, you have looked at what is required of other terms in a contract. 
And looked at from that point of view, which is the point of view that the FAA requires, um, other terms in this particular contract don't have to be in underlying capital letters. It's only the arbitration clause that, uh, that must be. And so the fact that we might be able to comply for this one clause doesn't, doesn't satisfy the test, because the lens that the court has to look through is the lens as to how other clauses are, are treated. I would uh, also say, incidentally, that the obstacles to complying with these state laws are great. And uh, to follow up on Justice Ginsburg's uh, supposition, it's not a supposition. Um, Missouri requires the notice to be right above the signature. Uh, Montana says it's on the first page. Uh, Texas says it has to be initialed by a lawyer. Uh, Iowa says it has to be signed by a party. California says it's 10-point type, and New York says it's 12-point type. It's impossible to comply with all those things. And the nationwide uniformity that Congress sought to achieve with the Federal Arbitration Act is destroyed by allowing states uh, uh, to do this. One final note, and that is this. Uh, this court will read the Chur decision. The Chur decision, uh, you, one can read it from front end to the back end. The majority doesn't even mention the notice statute. So uh, the supposition uh, that, that my opponent supposes that there's this law of technical non-competition. Thank you, Mr. Kravitz. Thank you. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs>